actually. This place is called Pink Lake Hillier. Pink Lake Hillier. Now, uh, yes, that lake is pink. That, that is no trick of the light. That is no trick of, of, of your eyes. Uh, it is well and truly bubblegum pink in color. Now, uh, this is just off the southern coast of West Australia. Western Australia, uh, on, in an, on an island. And, and scientists can't totally figure out why it looks the way it does, but, but, but the best guess is that it has to do with the extremely high level of salt uh, in the water. But pretty amazing. You see picture, pictures of people hiking, and they're taking photos of this pink lake. It's incredible. Here's another place. This place is uh, Abraham Lake in Alberta, Canada. Now, what you've got there aren't, um, aren't rock formations. They're frozen bubbles. They are frozen bubbles under the water. See, these bubbles have been trapped because the lake is typically frozen, which means that the the gas um, that is under the water, the methane gas, cannot float into the air. And so what happens is uh, this gas kind of goes between melting and freezing, creating these moving yet kind of frozen images of bubbles that are under the surface. Absolutely nuts. What about this one? Last one now, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing this correctly. Uh, Va'adu, I think, in the Maldives. Uh, this is not Photoshop. Uh, what we see here is plankton, which have the ability uh, to, to, bio, uh, to have, bio, have, have the ability of bioluminescence, which allows them to glow as a way to defend themselves from being eaten. Uh, so when there are many plankton being washed to the shore, uh, when the waves are agitating them, going towards the shore, as you'll see, uh, they begin to glow. And they look like stars in the ocean. This is incredible stuff. And this is all in our world. This is part of nature. And when you, when you see all these things, when you see... I'm, some of you are way more well-traveled than I am. Uh, our world is unbelievable, isn't it? It's breathtaking. I wonder if we had to describe with only words, so if you didn't have the visuals there, if you described with only words some of these parts of the world to people who did not know they existed, how would you do it? What words would you begin to use to kind of get across what is going on in each of these places? How would you describe the phenomenon that is happening behind it as well? How would you begin to do that? Even in my research, I'm still finding it hard to say some of these things to you. It's it's remarkable. Friends, as we come to the topic we looked at last week and continuing this week, as Paul um, talks about the resurrection of our bodies, that topic can kind of feel a little bit like that. I mean, if you're a Jesus follower, how would we describe the resurrection of our bodies to someone who denies it or doesn't know much about it? What words would you use to help them to picture it? And maybe just as importantly, how do you picture it? How do you make it more real for yourself? See, as we continue in 1 Corinthians 15, we see Paul's heart in urging the Corinthian church to see just how important it is to believe wholeheartedly in the resurrection of the body. Last week, uh, we heard just how much was at stake if they didn't believe just that. 
Now, for those of you who missed it, uh, jump online. It'll be worth your while. I promise. It's all free. But just as a reminder, there were huge huge stakes, weren't there? See, if, if the Corinthian church denied the resurrection of the body, the very message of the gospel they believed was compromised. If they denied the resurrection of the body, Paul says that their faith becomes futile, becomes empty. If they denied the resurrection of the body, God's plan for the universe is compromised. See, it's not just believing that Jesus rose from the dead. It's believing that they too will rise from the dead. And it's the same for us today. It's believing that we too will rise from the dead. This is absolutely central to what we believe of where Jesus follows. But Paul's not done. See, even though it's crucial and central to acknowledge and believe in the resurrection of the dead, in the resurrection of our bodies... As I said earlier, it's, it's kind of difficult, isn't it, to get our heads around it? It can, just seem, it can just seem so distant, maybe even abstract, foreign. And in popular culture, we don't really have much to reference it apart from zombie apocalypse movies, right? And so how do we get our heads around it? What do we expect? What should we expect? Well, fortunately for us, the Corinthians struggle with that exact same problem. They're struggling to get their heads around it as well. And so Paul is going to put some flesh to the bones for what we should expect in our passage today. Now, just for a bit of a roadmap today, just for those taking notes, uh, we're going to be looking uh, at two points. Firstly, we're going to look at the form of our resurrection bodies, the form of our resurrection bodies, and then we're going to look at the function for our resurrection bodies. Yeah? So the form of our resurrection bodies, the function for our resurrection bodies. Those points will be on the screen behind me as we go. Uh, so um, keen to get into the passage that we heard read and Uh, So let's pray. Let's ask God to speak and speak to us. Father God, we thank you for uh, this time to hear from you. Father, we thank you that uh, the resurrection body is, is something that we can hope for. And Father, we thank you that as we uh, hear from uh, your living, active word, uh, we pray that it would give us language to better grasp uh, what it is that you have in store for us. Fill our minds and fill our hearts uh, with that same passion and desire that the Apostle Paul has. Help us uh, to be confronted uh, by the glory that is to come. And Father, I pray that as we hear from your word that we would uh, be willing to let you speak. Uh, Help us to to both uh, listen, hear and respond. Uh, In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So let's look at the first point, the form of our resurrection body. The form of our resurrection body. Look with me at verse 35. Uh, But someone will ask, Paul writes, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? Now, uh, after Paul spends all this time talking about how important the resurrection body is, it's only natural that someone's going to ask, well, what form is it going to take? What's it going to look like? And so Paul anticipates that. That very, very question. Now, I wonder if you've ever thought about that question. What will I look like? What will my resurrection body look like? Um, I, uh, growing up, I went to I went to youth group. I went to youth group with Clem. Actually, Uh, we were in the same Bible study groups. And when we come to a passage like this, quite often the leaders would say, um, "Dom, Clem, why don't you draw? Why don't you draw what you think your resurrection body will look like?" Um, I would just draw Clem. 
no, I'm just kidding. But, but, but seriously, what, what we would do, what we would do is we would uh, draw pictures of us with, you know, massive biceps. You notice how my voice got deeper then? Massive biceps, a grated and chiseled six-pack, a body that would rival the most elite of Olympians, right? All those sorts of things. Don't judge me, right? Uh, but Paul's immediate response uh, to thinking about that question, what will our resurrection bodies look like? It's kind of surprising. How does he answer? What does he say? He replies with, at least initially, he replies with, how foolish. How foolish. Now, is, is, that, a, is, that, a weird, is that a question we shouldn't be asking then? Should we not be asking this? Should, is it a stupid question? Because it seems innocent enough. It seems logical even. So should we not be asking this question? Well, I don't think so. Because Paul does eventually answer what our what form our bodies will take. And he actually sheds a lot of light on it too. So what's going on? Why does he call them foolish? Um, The Corinthians would have asked this question from a particular way of looking at the world. As we heard really briefly last week, what dominated the landscape um, of the world was that spiritual things were greater than physical things. To put it another way, spirit stuff is good, physical stuff not so good. And so the popular way this view played itself out was that people saw their bodies as prisons. Bodies were just cages that held their souls captive. And so in this way of thinking, what what does death look like? Well, death is is a release. Death is freedom for the soul. Because the soul is superior to the body. And the soul, after the body dies, is finally able to drift to a better spiritual haven away from the physical decay of the world. Now, in some ways, this is kind of close to what a lot of modern spirituality is all about, isn't it? But the goal to, to, for the soul and for the mind to transcend the material and the physical. That we need to escape our body somehow to reach our full potential. We see this type of thinking in the classic movie, Gladiator, where, it's a very old movie, but spoiler alert anyway, at the end of the film, after Maximus dies, he is rejoined in the spirit world with his wife and with his child. Away from the reaches of the tyrannical Roman Empire. See, Maximus welcomes death. It's his escape. And that's the hope of this view of looking at the world. And so coming back to verse 35, it's likely then that the Corinthians are asking this question of what form our raised bodies are going to look like, not because they're interested necessarily, but because they're still in denial. They deny that this is actually what God's going to do. They're probably still thinking the bodily resurrection of the dead is completely wrong. It contradicts everything that the culture around me is telling me. And so that's probably why Paul says and responds, how foolish. It's as if he's saying, how can your view of the world so mislead you from something that is so crucial to what I know you already believe as Jesus follows? It's utterly foolish. So it's not the question that's foolish. It's the view of the world behind and under the question. And perhaps the view of the world behind much of our modern spirituality in the 21st century that Paul insults as foolish. See, church, something for us to think briefly about as a side point is where we as a church might, like the Corinthians, adopt a view of the world that our culture affirms that contradicts things that are central to the message we believe as Jesus follows. Where are we most tempted to align with values of the world that cannot be justified from a Christian view of the world? Now, you know, I haven't been at this pastoring thing for very long. 
But one of the things that I do see creeping into the church, but also our church and, and me included, is a desire to be happy. A ha- desire to be happy above everything, above all else. That happiness can drive, you know, deci- big decisions like where we live, what we do for work, purchases that we make. But I don't think that's necessarily where um, we can test that happiness is driving us above all else because, you know, there are lots of mixed motivations to things. Probably most telling, though, is where we see, where we see happiness drive us is when, we, how, when and how we respond to situations when our happiness is at risk. You know, when that promotion bypasses us, when that leave is not approved, when we're treated unfairly, uh, when sickness, trouble, instability happen either to us or to those around us which threaten our happiness, how do we respond then? And if we're honest to ourselves, maybe how have you responded when those things have happened? Or how might you respond if that hasn't happened to you? when your happiness is at risk. And what do those responses reveal? See, does happiness drive us above all else? Because at the heart of the Christian message isn't our happiness, is it? We serve a selfless saviour who gave his happiness for us and compels us to selflessly serve others, even at the expense of our happiness if need be. That's a contradiction to what is central to the Christian view of the world. See, friends, one thing that the messy Corinthian church teaches us is that we don't get to pick and choose the central parts of Christianity that we like and leave behind the central parts of Christianity that we don't. It doesn't hold together in Paul's words. That's foolishness. That's foolish. But coming back to the form, the form of our resurrection bodies. Now, what does Paul say? Well, he gives two answers um, that kind of seem in tension with each other and almost contradictory. He says that the form of our resurrection bodies are familiar to us. But on the other hand, he'll go on to say that it'll be entirely unfamiliar to us as well. The form of our resurrection bodies will be both familiar yet unfamiliar. Um, One of the shows that I spent way too much time watching in my final year of high school uh, to avoid studying at all costs uh, was The Biggest Loser. I loved watching The Biggest Loser. Who's seen it? Oh, nice. Much more response than Kingsway this morning. Um, it's a reality TV show, if you're not aware, all about weight loss. And the one who loses the most weight, by percentage, by the way, uh, the biggest loser over the course of the season, they're the one who wins. Now, I loved The Biggest Loser. I loved all the drama. I loved all the workouts. I loved the junk food that they put in front of them as temptations. It was such good reality TV back in 2008. Uh, but the best bit of the show was the finale. It was the finale. This is where you might have, you, you might have a, um, the final contestants, the final three contestants, maybe, they leave the house. They, they leave the house that they've lived in for months now, um, and they go back into the real world, and they test if their new lifestyle habits, they're going to last. And then they come back uh, to one final way in to determine the winner of the biggest loser for that season, and how they do it, the suspense is fantastic. You see, at the finale... Uh, we don't actually get to see them for quite some time. Uh, But when they walk onto the stage, they walk onto a stage where you have a silhouette that's shone onto the stage of a door that will open of what they first look like when they entered the show. That very first episode, their size and everything, the silhouette of that. And And then the doors kind of slide open 
And there they are as a small fraction of what they previously were. It's amazing stuff. It's fantastic. Um, they're all dressed up. They're styled. They're transformed for the finale. This is amazing reality TV. Now, why do I bring all this up? Well, I hope you can tell that I quite love the show. Uh, but it shows us that this concept of familiar yet unfamiliar, while it seems at attention, actually makes a lot of sense in what we see and know as well. See, these individuals were very much the same person, weren't they? Aren't they? They're recognizable, they're familiar, but yet they're drastically remade. In some instances, they're half of their body weight, which for some were nearly 100 kilos lighter. Like the confidence in some of, some of them totally transformed. And to people who hadn't seen them for the months that the show had happened, they wouldn't have been able to recognize the person nearly. Now, this illustration, it's not original. Um, I'm pretty much stealing the point that Paul makes with the seed from verses 36 to 38. Right? Without being experts in the germination process, how on earth are you meant to tell that this becomes this? And how are you meant to tell that this, when planted, becomes this? And how are you meant to tell that this will become this? See, Paul's illustration, looking at the seeds, um, goes one step further than what I was saying about the biggest loser. See, for the acorn to become an oak tree... Paul's saying this seed must be buried into the ground. The seed, in one sense, actually dies. It decomposes into the ground. And yet from this very spot, you see new life emerge from the ground, bearing nothing in resemblance to the seed, yet remaining at the same time the same in entity and DNA. See, for Paul, the idea that there is a resurrection from the dead and a transformation of our bodies in the future, it's not as crazy as we or the Corinthians might think. But it's more than a seed. He moves to other aspects of the world and nature from verses 39 onwards. Right? He looks at different kinds of bodies that fill both our world and beyond our world. The bodies of humanity. He looks at the bodies of the diversity in the animal kingdom. He goes to the heavenly bodies in the, in the sun, the moon, the stars, and the galaxies that extend beyond us. And each body in our world and beyond our world, they all have different glories. They all have different splendors appropriate to what they are and what they do. See, although we, there are things that we share in common with animals, like the ability to breathe and limbs and that sort of stuff, there is clearly a gap between us and them in splendor and glory, right? Although there are things uh, that heavenly bodies share in common, there is still a gap in splendor and glory between them. We don't orbit around any star. We orbit around the sun. If God determined all these things, if God gave each body its own glory and splendor, why is it hard to consider that God would create another kind of body? A body that shares things in common with the body as we know it, yet with a massive gap in splendor and glory. A resurrected human body. See, for Paul, the created world speaks of an inbuilt commitment by God towards our transformation. The created world speaks of an inbuilt commitment by God towards our transformation. See, while the resurrection body will have some traces of familiarity, the examples that Paul uses of a seed changing radically to a plant and the radical differences from glory to glory of, um, of body to body points to the fact that we also will be far more glorious than we can ever imagine. 
Paul seems to be seeing, saying, see what God has in store for you if you follow Jesus. Now, in what ways will we be unfamiliar? Well, that's probably worth asking. In what ways will, be, will we be radically more glorious? Well, have a look. Read with me from verses 42. Um, verses 42. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. See, for Paul, the resurrected body is not going to be like our current body with just some upgrades. It's going to be a massive contrast like night and day. What is perishable that can corrupt and decay, that's going to be raised imperishable. What's dishonorable that's subject to shame will be raised in glory. What is weak that is prone to injury, sickness and failure will be raised in power. What is natural will become supernatural. It will still be physical, as we've talked about, but it will be a spiritual physicalness, a physical body that is transformed and powered by the Spirit. It's kind of like how a sailing boat is, is a boat, yet powered and steered by the wind blowing at its sails. So a spiritual body is physical, yet powered and steered by the Spirit. They're big claims, aren't they? That's what our body's going to look like? How does Paul even make these sorts of claims? By what authority does he have? Well, he sees them and he can say them confidently because he's seen the risen Jesus. Earlier on in the chapter, back in verse 21, Paul describes Jesus as the first bit of fruit from a harvest that guarantees and tells us what the rest of the crop's going to look like. You'll get into that again from verses 45 to 49, that Jesus' resurrection life shows and guarantees what our resurrection lives will ultimately look like. And see, if you, know, if you know the gospel accounts, the biographies of Jesus, you'll know that after Jesus rose and appeared, there was a lot about him that was familiar, wasn't there? Right? He could prove his, his identity to those who knew him. He, he ate with them. The scar marks from the nails were still there. Right, to use his own words, he says, look at my hands, look at my feet. It's I, touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Right? There's a lot that's familiar about Jesus, even after he's risen. But there's a lot that's also radically unfamiliar. Right? He's able to disappear from sight. He's able to appear unexpectedly through locked doors. He can ascend into the heavens where he's now living and reigning with God. See, friends, in some ways, Jesus is just as he was after he rose. But in all ways, he's radically new and better. And Paul's saying that's what is anticipated for you. Friends, in the words of Paul at the end of verse 49, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven, the image of Jesus. So we've just looked at our first point, the form of our resurrection bodies. We're now going to look at our second point, the function for our resurrection bodies. The function for our resurrection bodies. Now, uh, recently, Jody and I visited a hot spring. Uh, I'd never been to one before. It was kind of fun. Um, now, I imagine hot springs to just be a place where you sit in hot bubbling water, you're around nature, it's kind of fun, it's kind of relaxing, it's kind of great. But what I did not expect um, was uh, this particular hot spring, it had an attraction, um, and it was caught... And, it was called contrast therapy. Right? Contrast therapy. Now, contrast therapy uh, is where you go between hot and cold environments, uh, which progressively get warmer and colder with each stage, uh, which I don't know about you. It just sounds like the best way to get sick. Um, 
Now, this hot spring called uh, their contrast therapy a fire and ice experience. Um, so what would happen is that you would begin in a spa, uh, and then you would go into an ice-cold plunge pool. And then you'd go to a sauna. And then you'd go to an ice cave. And so, <laughs> the and you do all this because as you're moving from stage to stage, the hot seems hotter than it is, and the cold seems colder than it is. And as I'm saying that out loud, it sounds like self-induced torture. Um, but at every point of this experience in contrast therapy, there were guidelines about how long you could stay in each section. Right? For example, that ice cave part was blasting negative 25 degrees Celsius, cold air, uh, which was absolutely nuts as an aside because you're just in your swimmers and you feel like your limbs are going to fall off. Uh, but that's something that you shouldn't stay in for more than three minutes for safety. See, <laughs> crazy nuts. And apparently elite athletes do this all the time. Now, the reason for those safety guidelines, though, is because our bodies just aren't fit for those sorts of climates, right? They're not fit for such climates. And as Paul moves to the closing of his argument, as he begins to talk about heaven, and Paul argues in verse 50 that we who are flesh and blood, we who are perishable, he says that we're not fit for the climate of heaven. You see, friends, heaven is an entirely different reality. Across the Bible, heaven isn't a place that we just go to. Heaven is a reality that comes down to earth. It isn't static. It's probably better imagined as an explosive reality that is ready and waiting to erupt and sweep out over all things. But the reality is, for the moment, heaven is currently being held back, by, um, in check, by the power and might of the will of God. But one day, this explosive reality of heaven will be released and everything in its path will be transformed at the blink of an eye, in an instant, at the sound of a trumpet. Even death will be transformed. Death will be swallowed up so completely that nothing will bear its mark ever again. Friends, if the entry of death into the world is something like a black hole, collapsing everything in and on itself, bending everything out of shape with its gravitational pull, then the reality of heaven is like a supernova moments before it explodes. And when this reality of heaven finally erupts across all time and across all the universe, everything that is not prepared for the brilliance of its light, that's going to be consumed. C.S. Lewis once described that it will be too bright for the world to bear. That's the language of heaven, breaking through into our world. And that's why we can't remain the way that we currently are. We've got to be prepared. Our bodies must be prepared. We've got to be transformed. We've got to become spiritual, supernatural beings, those that are transformed and powered by the Spirit of God. Why? Well, Paul tells us in verse 50. He says, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Friends, our present bodies aren't able to inhabit a heavenly existence. Just as an acorn in its seed form must be raised into an oak tree in order to support an ecosystem of birds, we've got to be raised into our resurrection um, bodies to inhabit heaven. See, friends, in other words, our resurrection bodies have an extremely important function. It's the bodily transformation that God gives us in order that we might dwell and enjoy Him forever in the reality of heaven. 
I love that Paul uses the language of, of inheritance to help us anticipate this transformation. See, we're already in the family. But one day we will receive from the Father what is of immeasurable worth. What is our inheritance? What is our inheritance in the kingdom of God? It's to enjoy Him. It's to relate with Him as He intends us to completely and personally. It's to further His perfect purposes in this explosive reality of heaven. It's to enjoy the beauty of restored and intimate relationship with others. That is ours if we're in Christ and can only be received in its entirety when God raises us from the dead. Friends, the perishable cannot inherit the imperishable. Our resurrection bodies have such an important function in the future reality of heaven. So, um, that's the function. But Paul could end there, couldn't he? You know, this lofty, amazing vision of, of what our bodies will be like. But he doesn't end there. Paul actually remains very grounded. He doesn't just sit there hoping and waiting for heaven to erupt on earth and not do much in the meantime. The fact that this is going to happen leads him to give directions to the church at Corinth as they await this eruption of heaven. He gives them directions. For us and for them, there is a present effect of knowing that our futures are bodily and erased. Knowing that our futures are going to be filled with splendor, filled with glory, that it's going to be imperishable, changes today. And so what does Paul say right at the very end in verse 58? He says, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, he says, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. He had the end of everything Paul's talked about throughout chapter 15. He calls the believers to stand firm. To do the work of the Lord. That labor is not in vain. Now, um, maybe some of you um, in your sieges this week talked a little bit about that last verse. What does it mean? You know, what does it mean to work, do the work of the Lord? What does it mean to labor in that way? Um, what does it mean that Paul is talking? What, what, what is he talking about? Well, a principle that's really, really important here as we read Scripture is that we've got to be mindful not to fit truths that we know are biblical into parts of Scripture that aren't actually trying to say that. Right? See, Southwest, it can be really tempting to read this and move very quickly into thinking that you know, everything we do in life is the work of the Lord. Because after all, we have good biblical reasons to believe that God cares about all our lives and that it matters to Him. So, for example, we could quickly conclude that the work of the Lord is generally about all of our lives and the responsibilities that we have, whether it's you know, restoring order, into the fallen world, loving others, managing others under our care well, developing and training minds, restoring wounds and physical brokenness, all this sort of stuff. Maybe all those things are works of the Lord. And from there, we can quickly move to think about how we might remain firm and give ourselves fully to all those things. But the problem is, as I said earlier, we're probably moving into the territory of reading God's Word to say what we think it might be saying, because it might be a true biblical principle elsewhere, rather than actually working out what Paul is talking about. See, what's Paul saying when he refers to the work of the Lord? What's he referring to as he speaks about the labor in the Lord? Paul is talking about, I want to suggest, uh, the specific work of Christian ministry. That's what Paul's talking about, the specific work of Christian ministry, making disciples of Jesus and to build his church. That's his concern here. 
And I think there are at least a few reasons for it, right? If you flick back to verses 10 to 11 of the chapter, you're going to see a lot of parallels right, with verse 58. There are themes of laboring and, and vain there. We don't see it as clearly in the NIV, but in the original language, are the same, same root words there, same vocab. In verse 10 and 11, if you read it in its entirety, you'll know that Paul is talking about the ministry of preaching and making disciples. It's very specific what Paul's talking about, what is labor and what is not in vain. And if you flick to the next chapter, chapter 16, verse 10, we'll see Paul talks about his prodigy, Timothy. He is one who is carrying on the work of the Lord just as he is. Paul's referring to something specific that both he and his prodigy does. They're both specifically building the church. That is the work of the Lord Paul's referring to. And one last reason, it also makes sense, about what we're talking about in this chapter of 1 Corinthians 15. See, God's going to raise and transform the dead in Christ. We all will be transformed as heaven breaks through and explodes across all the universe into an imperishable existence. So why is the making of disciples and building of the church the work and the labor of the Lord and not in vain? Well, because the work is directed to people from which some of them will be raised imperishable. Some of them will never die again. Some of them, death will will be swallowed up for them in total victory. For some of them, they will be part of this imperishable existence and in glory forever. And if that's the case, well, then the labor is not in vain, is it? See, Paul is talking very specifically about standing firm and giving fully to making disciples of Jesus and building God's church. That's the work of the Lord. So what should we do about all the other aspects of our lives? The other responsibilities that we do have, our work, our families, all those friendships and relationships that we have, well, they're all good things, aren't they? We should do them. They're clear ways we worship God and love others. But let's not dilute what Paul's talking about here at the end of 1 Corinthians 15. He's talking about building his church and proclaiming the gospel. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean for our church? Should we, should, should we just, you know, we just employ more ministers, more, more, more marshals, more peats to do the work of the Lord? Is that what we should do? Well, the answer is in verse 58, isn't it? What does Paul say? Right at the beginning, he says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters. That's not to ministers. That's to the church. That's to the entire church of Corinth. And to them, he says, always give yourselves to the work of the Lord. Friends, this is the call for every person who calls themselves Christians. If you follow Jesus, you are called into this work of following and building his church. You are called to proclaim the gospel. You are called to build up and encourage. You are called to this specific work. And I love that you know, we're seeing so many in our church already do this, especially recently, and are excited about this. And our prayer as those who serve God by shepherding you is to urge all of you to this and towards this. Now, don't tack this on to what you do day to day or week to week. You know, I, um, I had a chat with Carrie uh, uh, just last week, and we, I made, we just made an observation that Christians, in Sydney at least, can sometimes be the busiest people. Their weeks are full. They're chock-a-block, just full of stuff that are all good. But what ends up happening is when we've got all these things that are in our week just jamming to the brim, just doing one thing and going to the next, is things get crowded out. Things get pushed aside. And quite often, it's things like gospel proclamation. 
quite often it's things like building the church. Don't tack this stuff on. Maybe you've got to sacrifice other parts of your really busy week to make sure that this isn't just something that you kind of go, have I ticked the box? Are you doing the work of the Lord? Pray, are you praying diligently? Are you thinking thoughtfully about it? Are you acting purposefully to gospel proclamation and to the building of the church? This labor is not in vain. This labor concerns the imperishable, glorious, heaven-erupting work that will last for eternity. And so as we close and as I invite the band to come up, um, I want you to have a look around you for a sec. Seriously, just look around. Turn your heads, look around, have a good look. See, church, around you today are many people who uh, look pretty normal, look pretty ordinary, me most of all. Uh, But you know what? Those same people will one day shine like stars forever. The day will come when many who are here will live forever. Immortal, imperishable, glorious. And this is why the making of disciples, the building of the church, is work that all Christians are called to, and it's work that's never in vain. You're never going to regret a moment of service to the Lord and the building of His church. You're never going to do that. You're not going to regret it even once. For the day will come when the trumpet will sound, and the kingdom of God will erupt in our midst, and everything will be changed. Let me pray.